Welcome to the Do One Better podcast, where every week I focus on philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi, and I hope you'll enjoy the podcast. Keep on listening if you want to improve the world. So welcome everyone to the Do One Better podcast. What we aim to do here is to inspire listeners to think more about philanthropy and sustainability and social entrepreneurship. I'm Alberto Ligi, your host from London, and I have um, Tom McPartland on board for today's podcast, who's the CEO of Elma Philanthropies. I have known Tom for, um, for a few years. We met I think about four or five years ago at the World Bank with some foundations, uh, the Foundations Advisory Council. And so I thought it'd be great to have Tom on board today to um, shed light on, on the philanthropic work uh, Elma is doing, uh, but also there's so much more to it in terms of a very diverse and robust portfolio, a focus on social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and everything in between. So Tom, welcome on board for today's episode. Uh, thank you so much, Alberto. It's a pleasure to be with you and have a chance to talk a little bit more in depth about our work and uh, sort of how we see the world and and what we think is possible as opposed to spending too much time fretting over the problems, looking more about uh, the solutions. So always happy to have that conversation. Great. So tell me a little bit about Elma Philanthropies. So the Elma, um, so Elma Philanthropy Services, the organization that I run, uh, has headquarters here in New York um, and uh, wholly owned operating subsidiaries in South Africa and Uganda. We run um, our activities for Southern Africa out of Cape Town and Johannesburg, and we run East Africa out of Kampala in Uganda. And currently, uh, whatever activities we have taking place in West Africa, we manage here out of New York, but uh, aspirationally hope to have, when appropriate, on um, a presence on the ground somewhere in East Africa, likely somewhere like Ghana. Um, but that's for a future consideration. What makes Elma um, possibly unique, or at least originally unique, would be sort of our approach to philanthropy. The first is we have a significant presence on the ground in the geography in which we work. Mm -hmm. The foundations that we serve um, all have a geographic and um, uh, philanthrop thematic philanthropic uh, focus. And so while the bulk of our activities uh, are in sub-Saharan Africa, the Elma Relief Foundation and the Elma Vaccines and Immunization Foundation both have a global uh, remit. And so they can and do make grants outside of Africa, but because our core philanthropic focus and expertise is in Africa, those two foundations also, the preponderance of their um, grant investments would be um, in Africa as well. So we think of ourselves as, as to the extent one is, um, a geographic expert or an Africa expert because that is our core market. And so we not only want to be based there, we want to really understand the economic and geop geopolitical circumstances on the ground. And we factor those in real time as best we can into the philanthropic investments we make. Um, as I'm speaking, you're hearing me say things like philanthropic investment, mm -hmm. grant investment. Um, for us, um, even when we are thinking about um, supporting financially a nonprofit organization, 
we think of it as an investment. And because we think of it as an investment, and I don't mean that in a punitive sense, but I mean it in an aspirational sense, we are investing in an organization to achieve certain implementation goals and objectives on the ground. Right. And so what we believe, and I hope more and more um, uh, private philanthropists will come to understand that if we are investing in change or investing in a solution to a problem or a solution to a challenge, uh, we need to be as focused on the integrity, the operational and management integrity of the implementing organization as much as most funders focus on the programmatic activity. Okay. All too often, I find, uh, and I won't speak officially for Elma, but I'll speak for my own perspective, um, I find all too often historically, now it's changing, thankfully, but historically, all too often, I found that the, especially bilateral, multilateral, or older, large, highly institutionalized foundations typically are hyper-focused on the program activity, the program uh, credentials, if you will, of the implementing partner, and a little bit more casual about how strong is their operations department, their accounting department, their command and control procedures, their, um, their senior management um, ability to, to manage um, highly dynamic, highly uh, change-driven environments. Mm-hmm. And really, a lot of times, therein lies uh, the problem. Um, and also, coupled with that, I think um, we didn't spend enough time as an industry really finding quantitative key measures of success. And when we couldn't quantify and measure something because it didn't lend itself to measurement like financial performance does, we didn't agree with our implementing partner on what would be appropriate proxy measures. And of course, some of the things we're trying to get at need to be measured more in terms of uh, long-term outcomes versus short-term outputs. But still, I think you know there was too much focus on working with people like us or people we know from the space. Um, and it was a small industry and a lot of people moved from place to place. And so there was sort of a kind of a network of mm-hmm. familiars. And I think there wasn't enough what I would call crucible of the marketplace to drive um, better performance, to to weed out inefficiency, uh, and to sort of, I don't want to cast it in the context of winners and losers, but to really you know, have a market dynamic pushing for greater efficiency, greater efficacy, greater impact. And so because so much of Elma was um, – kind of designed and built by successful business entrepreneurs. Not that that's better, it's just different. And so we brought what looks like and feels like very much um, kind of a, a, a financial management, investment management approach to our philanthropy where the due diligence looks very much like the due diligence one would do if they were making a financial investment in an organization, even if it's a grant. The structuring of the grant transaction uh, takes very much into account the organizational structure, the investment rationale of the financing, the the business plan relating to the to the program activities, the financial plan, and then lastly, what are the sources of funds? Who else is in this? Who else agrees that this is important and is a good idea? Is it only other government funders, or is it also a suite of private funders? And kind of correlating all of that. Uh, to make sure that you've kind of 
not only become fully aware of the strengths and weaknesses and challenges of the implementer as an, as an organization, but also understand where that program intervention sits in terms of some kind of system change, in, in terms of some kind of steady state context, and in terms of what will be ultimately the sustainability either through government or private sector to sustain whatever it is you're hoping to help advance, you know, and, you know, I, I realize that's a long, long winded answer to your first question, but <laughs> I think, you know, I think it's really, how do you think holistically, tactically, um, operationally, and from an investment standpoint to achieve the goals and objectives you, uh, and what partners do you need, uh, as part of that process? I noticed on your website, and I imagine listeners, if they visit, they'll, they'll see it, um, quite clearly as well, is that you have investment frameworks pretty much for everything you're doing. And I can see that there's a bit of dispassionate analysis whenever you're considering a proposition. Let me ask you though, if I step back a little bit, in terms of ELMA mm -hmm. itself, what sort of organization is it uh, in terms of the balance sheet, endowment, uh, operating budget? What's, that, what's it look like? Okay, so we are a private foundation. Uh, we have five core foundations and then several smaller foundations that have come along later in um, the life cycle of the overall organization that we serve. They are client organizations, so they are separate legal entities for whom we provide all of the due diligence, portfolio management, uh, documentation, and preparation and oversight and, um, and database management services for, but the individual foundations themselves are uh, responsible for formally approving the grants that we recommend. Right. And then once once approved, we continue on and maintain the active portfolio management on behalf of those foundations as a service. So we don't disclose the size of any individual foundation's corpus or, or how they're structured, uh, nor do we, as you see on the website, talk about uh, the individual size of the grants out of respect for the grantees themselves or investees themselves. And also, uh, we don't want the story to be about Elma. We take great pains in trying to bang the drum of the incredible organizations that are doing the work on the ground that we help fund and support. And we don't want the story to be about our organization or, or our um, size or scope or scale. But Suffice it to say that if you were looking on our website, you will see that we have everything from an ELMA community grants program where we have some uh, approximately 100 grantees uh, that are small organizations, uh, small community-based organizations operating um, um, in the communities in which they reside, uh, often taking on one urgent need, uh, living and operating on a shoestring, uh, having staff and founders donate a, a lot of uh, love, blood, sweat, and tears, uh, and some limited financial resources to some intractable social need in those communities, quite a few of them dealing with very poor uh, communities, children who have disabilities or special needs, uh, because in most of those communities, the social services and government resources are just not there in sufficient number uh, or resource to provide for those types of uh, most unmet needs. And so we do everything from very small uh, grants to small community organizations to very, very large multi-year, multi-million dollar grants 
that seek to engender some kind of system change uh, at a national or multi-country level and everything in between. I was really taken aback by just how diverse the portfolio is and also the fact that, as you point out, you have some, some grantees who, who ostensibly are very small. And then also I came across one of your projects or a collaborative endeavor that you're involved with, the Audacious Project, looking at social entrepreneurship and, and trying to create a new model to, you know, to inspire change at scale. And the partners are prominently by your side there. You have Bill and Melinda Gates yeah. Foundation, MacArthur, Skull, Ted. You know, it's, it's very impressive. Yeah. And so I guess the answer to your question is we can make grants at the size of those peer institutions. And we can also make um, tiny, very surgical grants where we think there's a humanitarian imperative that calls for that type of engagement in that space. And, and part of that comes from understanding, as I mentioned earlier, the ecosystems in which we operate. You know, the way I describe um, small community-based organizations is I, I refer to them as proto-civil society. You know, they're hopefully will be the incubation around which an active, vibrant civil society grows up in these countries and in these communities that will always be a bulwark or a, a foundational support element that will append itself to what I hope will also be a growing capability and commitment, not just a growing capability, but commitment by those governments to also enhance the scope and quality of the social services they provide. So we always, we know in Switzerland or in the United States or in the United Kingdom, no matter how affluent those communities are, we realize the government does not provide 100% mm -hmm. of the social needs of the communities, especially most those in most of need. And so hopefully as part of Africa's growth and the uh, developing world's growth is, is this growing civil society. And so doing something to help incubate that alongside of working on large system change. Is that a big part? The, uh, the, for instance, I know that there was the LMSF Africa Foundation. And I noticed it's quite a big drive there and sort of constitutional rights for all South Africans and seemed quite sort of um, institutional, I guess. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned that one because for me, as you know, having been a lawyer before being an investor and an investment banker and a public company CEO, in a private, in my prior life, I was in my first professional iteration, I was a corporate lawyer in the media and entertainment space. And, um, and, but on a personal level in law school, my passion was constitutional law. And, mm -hmm. you know, I often have said, and I think many would agree with me, that the most, un, you know, as an American, people would expect me to say, you know, the most enlightened constitution on earth is the U.S. Constitution. I would say it pales mightily in the face of the South African Constitution. I think the South African Constitution is the most enlightened a uh, constitution on earth, possibly because it grew out of that apartheid experience. And I think the importance of the South African constitution extends well beyond the borders of South Africa and really is a symbol of, 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 uh, of a transparent government structure uh, that is a model for all of Africa. And if the South African constitution is imperiled mm -hmm. by the party that actually brought it to the fore. I think then that is a peril that exists for all of us who aspire to see uh, a transparent, accountable government systems 
elsewhere on the continent. And so what's exciting to me is we don't, as you know, from our conversations with the Bernard Vernier Foundation around early childhood, uh, early childhood de development policy and advocacy, ELMA is not heavily invested uh, at this juncture in the policy and advocacy space. So it's exciting to me to see that we have one portfolio that very much supports um, policy, advocacy, rights, accountability, uh, defending the Constitution or supporting the Constitution um, in South Africa. And I think the organizations that are doing that work, you know, they were there during the apartheid. Many of them were there during the apartheid struggle. Some of them came out, came into existence afterwards, but they all play a really vital role in terms of helping the government see uh, its role in terms of its accountability to its citizens. So that one, on a very personal level to me, uh, is really exciting. How did she decide to support that? And how does Elma decide where to go in terms of what sort of thematic areas or interventions might be um, ideal to pursue? How, how, does that, how does that decision-making happen? So the Elma South Africa Foundation has its own board. They're all South Africans. Um, and they closely monitor um, what's happening on the ground. And in reality, um, that, that foundation getting involved in that space is a bit of an evolutionary process and looking at the, the needs and, and urgencies on the ground. But essentially, like all of our work, we're looking at improving the life prospects, the health, safety, and quality of life for Africa's children. I mean, that's central core to our mission, however it's elaborated or articulated slightly differently in each foundation, children and their families are at the heart and soul of Elma's work. And so when certain things have occurred, like you know major legislation affecting when the Children's Institute's data was able to get the South African government through, re through litigation and through the use of comprehensive data uh, was able to show the government that they had to do kind of inflation-based adjustment and CPI adjustment to the social protection grants. That one successful event unlocked government resources to poor children and their families at unprecedented levels. I mean, mm -hmm. that that could have that could be the functional equivalent of a hundred years of private philanthropy trying to get at some of those challenges. And so uh, we became aware of the fact that there were certain issues relating to access to education, access to health services, access to social protection that needed to be supported by a government who had committed to fund those things but might need uh, the, the support of uh, private sector uh, rights organizations and academic institutions to help them understand how to shape and give life to and effectively deliver on some of those legislative enactments. So I think that was very much a product of or an example of what I mentioned uh, earlier, Alberto, which is, you know, being in the marketplace, observing what's happening in real time, and then adapting to and identifying gaps and needs that can be leveraged to help uh, advance the ball. And that's a sort of... Um landscape analysis that you undertake internally, you and your colleagues, or is it, um, or do external parties approach you? How do you operate? Um... So for us, as you mentioned earlier, with some of the other portfolios, we have an investment framework that seeks to define the core priorities of each 
um, thematic area under each foundation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'd say the first uh, important imperative to those investment frameworks was having an appropriate uh, um, time frame under which to apply them. So a minimum of three years, and in many instances, we envision many of those core investment frameworks uh, absent some major learning or setback or change of circumstance, we envision them being you know, renewed, but looking at them in discrete three-year measurement periods so that we can measure and gauge our own performance and learning against those frameworks. Right. But, but um, I would say in the main, many of the core frameworks are areas for which we have over the last 15 years developed a deep internal and con- uh, expertise uh, both um, technical and contextual, but in the case of you know neglected tropical diseases or the rights space, or um, as we expand on building the workforce for children, clearly in South Africa we have deep technical knowledge about early childhood development. But from time to time, we are not um, adverse to bringing in a technical expert, consultants, uh, partners to help us. Uh, gather additional knowledge and intelligence how to proceed. We're in constant dialogue with the implementing community, the co-funding community. And for us, partnership is, you know, the holy grail. Right. From an individual grant to major initiatives at scale, you you referenced Audacious or co, um, uh, um, co-impact types of platforms. Um, that are coming up now as new ways of private philanthropy coming together to really push large-scale concerted efforts. Uh, But even on the individual transaction level, we're constantly looking for like-minded partners. And of course, partnership doesn't mean you just come and do my thing. It means I also have to be uh, conscious of what, what goals and objectives you're bringing to the party and how we can achieve collaboratively our respective goals. So for us, it's it's really no pride of open uh, authorship and very much open source. Now, that's fascinating. And I know, just speaking from personal experience, you and I have had a few phone calls over the years, and it's always about the sort of collaborative spirit and exploring where, where there might be areas of mutual interest to, um, to, to tackle. Um, it's interesting because a lot of the individuals I speak with day in, day out, and when I mention that I'm in philanthropy or in the foundation space, there is this feeling oftentimes that there isn't much collaboration going on in the foundation space or that things are very territorial and ego-driven and and sort of vanity exercises. But my experience and by what you're saying here as well, you know, it's quite the opposite. I think if you really want to achieve uh, high-quality, scalable, system-wide, sustainable change, you, you necessarily need to have those sort of collaborations with other funding partners and governments and, and delivery uh, outfits as well, don't you? Absolutely. And maybe we'll, we'll get at this as a separate topic point in a moment, but I would argue that, uh, and we ourselves are moving in this direction, hopefully continue to do it in a straight line. But if you are really about solving a problem or big problems, or ideally engendering some kind of sustainable system change, then by definition, you're not in the project or program business. And every time you do a standalone project or program, which would, I think, be something you could do comfortably by yourself as the Ford Foundation or the Carnegie Foundation, right? You don't don't need somebody else 
to fund Save the Children to do a three-year, um, you know, service delivery project in a place. But um, the way we think about it here is those are really great, often um, uh, humanitarianly driven, but it's a little bit like, you know, if you had a glass of water and you put your hand in the water, the level of the water goes up. But when you take your hand out, the level of the water goes down to where it was when you put your hand in. Those, those can very much be that type of philanthropy, well-intentioned, often doing really great things for the period of time for which they're being done. But at the end of the day, they've elevated the level of hope but done little to, to make a, a permanent change. So if we, as private philanthropists, want to catalyze uh, systemic change, it would be the height of arrogance to think we can, can, should or can do that alone, right? So what we're saying is, and maybe this is a flawed premise, but I think not. What we're saying is, if you get enough private philanthropists together well, you're aggregating capital that's on par with a bilateral or multilateral funder. And you're bringing time, attention, and focus where a very targeted intervention is getting intense, sustained attention and resources uh, that may be sufficient in terms of time to break, to break the back of the problem or get the problem sufficiently on the run that the government then and the institutional system can take it that last mile to the finish line. Um, and so I think, you know, we're all running around with our investment frameworks. We're all running around with our disparate strategies. But if we can start to come together around quantitatively provable interventions uh, in a concerted effort over a meaningful period of time with a sufficiently meaningful level of resources, I think we can do things that haven't been done, whether they could have or should have, they just have not been done. For example, I am now 100% convinced that through these private consortiums, we will, at Carter Center has proved it, uh, we will be able to put the nail in the coffin on a number of incredibly um, uh, pernicious, invasive, uh, neglected tropical diseases that will have profound economic knock-on benefits, both for public health systems as well as for economic systems within the countries for which those diseases have been uh, a pervasive burden. And so, you know, you're talking about very realistic uh, objectives of moving to elimination trachoma in possibly 21 countries. That's being primarily driven by private funders. Yes, it will require the bilateral basket funding to continue to fund those ministries of health thereafter to do their general health activities inclusive of some continued continuation of, of surveillance and mass drug administration. But in the main, those 40 to 80 million doses um, that will be deployed will be done so through a private consortium. We have to be looking more and more at how those consortiums can be tightly bundled around a very discreet, focused set of objectives. And I think we can do some incredible things that way. And you mentioned co-impact a little bit earlier. And are you finding, generally speaking, the landscape, the trends are for, for more um, co-funding um, endeavors and collaborative yeah, endeavors? Yeah, I think, well... There, there's, there's an interesting kind of thing developing around collaboration. 
So if you look at one way of, well, if you start sort of pre-collaboration, right? Okay. So in pre-collaboration, you have private funders and, and institutional funders doing their own thing. Think of, you know, it's not only rare for five or six private fund foundations or funders to come together around a discrete project. It's equally um, rare for the DFIDs and the USAIDs and uh, NORFUN and others to come around a discrete time-bound intervention, right? They're all funding into those governments around some of the same thematics, but in different ways, different priorities, mm -hmm. different timing, et cetera, right? So it's hard for everybody to get together. But if, uh, if it's a rather, I think it's an easy concept um, or mental hurdle to get five or six private funders to agree that over a five-year period, we should all be putting X dollars down to do Y thing, right? What's much trickier and where the devil in the details is, if you're not somebody who already works regularly uh, with a bunch of co-funders, mm -hmm. you've got no experience in harmonizing the reporting system. You have no experience in terms of harmonizing your own grant award uh, agreements. You have no experience in refining key measures of success in a collaboration with other funders. Your experience is typically addressing those issues one-on-one -on -one with your implementer. And so there are certain collaboration platforms developing where everybody just in a shark tank kind of way agrees we're going to back X, but we're all going to do it our way. And you hope one of the players steps forward and is the coordinator in a semi official way. And then there are other platforms like the co-impact strategy where there is actually a fund manager, right? So there is sure. a team that will actually do that. And then, then, while that is probably more efficient and more streamlined and certainly less headache for the implementer, what, what could be a challenge there is, does the funding partner feel comfortable delegating to the co-impact all of that autonomy of how to deploy that capital, right? Uh, and so you have all those issues that we are all as a community learning to navigate through at the small level of collaboration, at the medium level of collaboration, and at very high levels of collaboration. I mean, if somebody listening to this works at a foundation or possibly runs a foundation, and let's say it's one that maybe has a you know a considerable operating budget, uh -huh. maybe they're rolling out fifty fifty million dollars a year or something along uh -huh. those lines. Um, and let's say that they don't do anything collaborative right now. So they're they're the sort of traditional poster child of what you might think. Here there's some money, they have some grantees and, and there you go. How how do they go about um, connecting with and identifying the relevant funding networks that might be more suitable to them, both in terms of geographic footprint or thematic areas or or given capacity or expertise? Um, what would you recommend to somebody? Well, first thing I would recommend is if you, let's talk about, so where for purposes of verbal shorthand, Alberto, we'll say that what you've posed is the, um, the, the Acme Foundation is deploying uh, $50 million a year in commitments 
it has whatever its overhead is and it has to to date it has only basically um found its own grantees by whatever process and made standalone grants to them uh rarely if ever in coordination or consideration of some other parallel funding stream to that grantee of theirs right Correct. that's the premise yeah right and now uh we want to know how they might move beyond that so the first thing i would want somebody to discuss with that with acme and this could be with its board or with its leadership is what is the indicia of success it currently has for itself and does it believe it is achieving that success because if the indicia of success and i don't want to take issue with their success not being worthy uh or sufficient but let's say they have a clearly defined indicia of success. Sure. And if they feel like they're achieving that, well, then God bless, continue on in that direction, right? But if they are feeling like whatever their mission is about, that they are not able to affect it at sufficient scope and scale or in a way that seems to continue on and sustain itself beyond the time frame of each investment they make, then I would want them to look at a number of things, right? Some of it would be, am, am, I, am I supporting the right kind of stuff? It could be as simple as that. I think they would have to go through a couple of steps before deciding, hey, I should just do what I do already, but with a bunch of other folks. I would first look at what I am investing in and is anybody else investing in it? And if other people are investing in it, I would do a cost-benefit analysis of whether or not it makes sense for me to try to bring the things I invest in to one, two, three, four, five, ten other investors, or I should look at what they're investing in and think, is that a better way to invest in my mission? And then, depending on what my conclusion was, go out there and see who else is doing it. You know, the easiest way to find out what's going on is in every grant recommendation or investment recommendation we make, the very last page of the recommendation document lists the sources of funds. Mm -hmm. And so right off the bat, we're, lo we're looking at every day, all day, who else is funding that thing. And we're making very serious decisions based on our interpretation of those sources of funds. And so right off the bat, you could start with your own grantees and look at the ecosystem, the funding ecosystem in which they reside and I would start tapping into that first. And then if I felt that ecosystem was not sufficient to fuel the change and the, uh, the entities within that change envelope, I would then look you know, to see how I can find others that should be funding into that space. But yeah. you know, there's the audacious thing and Ted are very well publicized now. Co-impact is being very well publicized. I would definitely, depending on the potential size of my investments, I would look at those types of platforms for ideas. And then I would do what you did uh, in your last um, leadership role, which is, are there uh, private consortiums coming together around core thematics like we brought to the World Bank? You know, Is there a funders group around early childhood development? Is there a group 
that we like we helped create two groups. One was early childhood development in emergency settings, mm -hmm. um, education in emergency settings. Who cares about that? Who are the institutional players? Who are the private funders? And it's very easy to find whether or not um, an ecosystem um, exists. The exciting thing, I think, for the Acme Foundation was, let's say the Acme Foundation was dealing with newborn mortality as its core issue. And it found out that there was no real working group at, let's say, UNICEF or WHO or consortium of private funders. We have the Nest 360 initiative that Elma is supporting that came out of the MacArthur uh, 100 and change initiative. They were a semifinalist and this is going to be a suite of neonatal uh, intensive care devices that will allow almost a turnkey, low cost, low resource setting NICU unit to exist within um, a, a low resource health setting. Um, so let's say that ACME was around newborn mortality. Mm -hmm. And they realized that there was nobody, there wasn't one of these groups that they could join. I think a hugely impactful thing for them to be doing would be to start trying to figure out if with, with their anchor, they could put, help cultivate a group of like-minded funders. So for example, if Acme came along, they'd find out very quickly that Elma is seriously committed to maternal newborn and child health in sub-Saharan Africa, they would give us a call and they'd immediately find out that we and 10 other funders work in that space, right? And then they would be able to start to cultivate and propagate a yeah. funder collaborative. It's easy to do, it's just gotta be something that you perceive as a priority. And, and fortunately, I think that is a new priority, a new reality that is finally taking root in the world of private philanthropy. And the thing is, though, I, I think the reality is that a lot of foundations don't have clarity of thought uh, or clarity yeah. of purpose. I mean, they exist, they're there, but a lot of them don't have that. And um, and I suppose having some of these platforms that can shape focus attention into a specific area is a sensible thing. Although then again, I imagine sometimes within the board of a specific foundation, you might have five board members and 10 different opinions. Um, I wonder what that looks like when you have 10 separate boards in one of these collaboratives. And then also, if you take that one step farther, presumably you have to have some sort of connection with the national governments where you're operating in order to, to have the right, um, the right context or right operating environment, I suppose, as well. Yeah, but uh, that's why I answered that question uh, about when you first posed ACME, not talking about the collaboration at all, right? The first thing is, what is it that you invest in? Do you think you have sufficient clarity on what that is? Do you feel you have defined sufficient granularity about what success looks like in investing in that area? And then you know, where do you go from there? Where does faster, better, wider, deeper, what does that look like? And my suggestion is that getting other co-funders is just one ingredient mm -hmm. in faster, better, wider, deeper, right? You got to deal with those other issues first. And, you know, the, the sad thing, the great news about philanthropy and foundations in general is that a 
a, a, a set of legal um, tools and a history has grown up where uh, great success and great wealth has found its way into these really potentially transformative um, uh, uh, funding platforms. What's unfortunate is those, the market forces and the market disciplines and the, the pressure of failure and success in the marketplace that created that wealth did not follow that wealth into the foundation spaces, mm-hmm. right? And so that same rigor uh, is too rare of a commodity in, in the places of philanthropy, but it's coming and it's growing. And, you know, as I think you found out about me, Alberto, I, while I can articulate the problem precisely, I am uh, absolutely optimistic on uh, the power and possibility of change. Absolutely. Um, and- absolutely. Let me ask you, though, because, again, and, and also living here in London, um, in New York as well, though, the um, family office space, is, is it's a very big thing. A lot of family offices, a lot of family offices that are being run uh, to preserve wealth and, and, and make financial investments. Uh, but increasingly, the philanthropy bit is becoming more pronounced. And I do know that a lot of these family offices, and when they're looking at philanthropy, they don't really know where to go. They, you know, the, the, the scarcity of money is not the issue. There's an abundance of money. It's just a scarcity of high-quality and scalable projects and, 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 and a focus on you know, an understanding of what to focus on. Let me just ask you a little bit with your rigorous approach to impact measuring, evaluation. How do you go about that and what do you recommend to somebody whose who sophistication isn't as developed as yours and whose uh, appreciation or understanding of impact measurement is just quantifying how many recipients you've reached, you know, uh, which sure. is at the very basic level. So if you look at um, uh, UBS, mm-hmm. JP Morgan Chase, Royal Bank of Canada, um, just to name a couple, um, you, you see that, um, the wealth management arms of, uh, these, uh, financial services organizations, especially the, the ultra high net worth, um, departments within the wealth management systems of these banks um, have come to realize that there are a a body of services that um, their clients require or desire beyond just the direct wealth management, investing, portfolio allocation, risk management issues. There, you know, some have gotten into the uh, art you know, art insurance and curation and, and security business. They host different things for their clients who might be investing in um, non-traditional assets. But in the main, every one of them has built, because of the um, uh, demand from their clients, what I would call a philanthropy advisory practice. Yes, It goes from everything from the bank having its own foundation that can co-fund projects with its clients to a uh, just an advisory practice that helps the clients with their own philanthropy to an actual department 
on the product side that is um, what I would call social sector finance investable opportunities, right? And those three pillars of the philanthropic advisory are very, very um, highly developed. The three banks I mentioned uh, have very sophisticated um, uh, significant commitment to that practice area and provide um, that support to their clients. So in the main, the first thing I would say is anybody who is so not yet built their philanthropy either as part of their family office or as just a, a high net worth individual that is the family office is in effect the wealth management arm of one of these firms, the first stop I would always recommend is your financial advisors are already in the business of providing philanthropic best practice advice to their uh, similarly situated clients. And I would always start there because right. you already have a relationship of trust. One of the things I find that's difficult for the new philanthropist um, is, um, you know, everybody is is positioning them for selling them a product, selling them an investment, you know, has an agenda. And you never want your philanthropy, you never want to feel like your philanthropy is being guided by somebody who wants to get some benefit sure. from it, right? And so I would start there. And then I would, and what happens when you do that is um, those institutions, for example, have often reached out to Elma or to Gates or to other uh, philanthropic players who are far more mature in their own journey. And then we, you know, we and others offer advice and counsel uh, based on the unique context and circumstances of that uh, individual, always without an agenda, right? Because we're mm -hmm. our goal is to just make sure there are other smart players in the space and, God forbid, help prevent them from making some of the mistakes that we may have made along the way or pitfalls that are easy to fall into. And on the impact investing bit, because the the you know if you're looking at family yeah. office, if you're looking at family offices and a lot of them are various generations that are involved, and some of the older generations perhaps are more traditional sort of checkbook philanthropy. Some of the younger uh -huh. young, younger groups these days, you're looking more illiquid assets, impact investing, some sort of financial return in conjunction with the social environmental yeah. return. And the feeling I get is that a lot of the times, again, it's not a scarcity of of money that's available for investments. No. The scarcity sometimes, at least as, as it's conveyed to me, it's a scarcity on the deal flow generation side. So in other words, wh where does somebody go for impact investing opportunities that are that are that exist but may not be immediately evident to somebody who's um, who's heading up a family office and again this is not just some sort of hypothetical these are anecdotes that i, I hear quite no, often. absolutely yeah absolutely so one of the things i often tell family offices and financially sophisticated players who want to do philanthropy but who may not be technically conversant with you know, the actual work of maternal health or mm -hmm. childhood development or whatever. One of the things that is not lacking is in the aggregate, you know, in the right time and place. Yes, it's lacking. But in the aggregate, as you say, the quantum of capital is there. What's not there is a way to deploy it efficiently and effectively at the right time in the right place. The other thing is, what I am hoping more and one of the things that I am absolutely certain of 
when the history of Elma is written, and certainly my the, the period of time I will have been here, mm-hmm. some of our biggest wins have not have been have not been about the money we deployed. It's the other stuff we deployed. Right. Okay. So we brought some uh, M and A work. We brought some. Uh, McKinsey work. We brought some reorganization. We brought innovative financing. We structured some really cool debt alongside of grants. We brought two implementers together in a collaboration or 10 implementers together and hired another implementer to coordinate those 10 to do something uh, significant over an extended period of time. And so bringing what I would call good old-fashioned business acumen, business management, financial management, partnership management, business development management, project management, and bringing those skills that every family office and every successful entrepreneur has, that's the stuff that the field does not have. It has money and it has somebody who knows how to treat a child. It doesn't have all that other stuff. And these are complex business systems. These are complex supply chain logistics systems that are broken or under-resourced or under-capacitated in terms of human resource and financial resource and technical resource. And most family offices have a lot of that stuff. And so all they think about is they leave that brain at the door or that hat on the coat rack and they just sign a check. And my view is we need to be bringing those other skills to the philanthropy um, because I would argue that forget finding a for-profit entity that you can invest in that does the same kind of stuff as the not-for-profit organization you make a grant to. What if you found a not-for-profit organization like the One Acre Fund who not only does superlative work with small stakeholder farmers by receiving grant funding, but we've helped them get to a point where they maintain a debt syndicate of $55 million because they're buying millions and millions of tons of Uh, uh, millions of millions of dollars worth of tons of farm implements such as fertilizer, seed, and equipment and material that they on-lend to their farmers. What's the difference between bringing all of your business, uh, family office business acumen to helping that not-for-profit grow with a combination of debt, first loss uh, coverage, and grants to grow to a $70 million a year business that's serving a million farmers. To me, that's just as complicated, and it's the same kind of investment banking that you would do if you were investing in an entity. But people don't think that those are the skills that a one-acre fund is crying out for in terms of a partner. And so my view is that's the kind of stuff that um, needs to be deployed along with the philanthropic capital. Well, there we go. If there's any family office CIOs or, or uh, management listening to this podcast, now you know it a little bit more. Um, we are running out of time, and I'm absolutely going to have to ask you to come back on board to the podcast. It's a future date as well, because this conversation has taken many different interesting areas, that um, okay. all, all of which are fruitful uh, to explore further. Now, as you know, the Do One Better podcast, we are about inspiring philanthropy, about having people think more about sustainability and having having folks embrace social entrepreneurship. And so one key question before we, we part ways is if our audience forgot everything we just said today, if they take away one thing, if they remember only one thing, what, w- what would you think that should be? 
I, I, I would say that if I left you with only one thought, it would be, you know, the power of one. Uh, do not get hung up by the scope and scale of the challenges that exist or the magnitude of the um, inequities that, that define our world. But no matter how big the problem is that relates to your interest area, believe that you can, as an individual organization, carefully looking at your work and your approach and thinking about how you can create leverage, you can create a momentum that really engenders significant system change. I've seen it time and again, and you just have to believe in the possible and, uh, and not be overwhelmed by some of the size of the challenges or how long some of these challenges have existed. We're seeing things that have not been solved for over a hundred years. We're seeing them finally, uh, surrendering, finally succumbing to, um, to change. And so, um, the, the power of, of, uh, private capital, the power of digital technology, the power of global communications, the ubiquity of the cell phone. There are 1.5 billion more cell phones connected than there are people that have access to clean drinking water. So the ubiquity and the power of these devices give us new tools as private sector players to really help move governments and systems in uh, miraculous and dramatic ways. And so um, engage uh, and I promise you, you will be satisfied uh, with the impact you achieve. Well, I could I could not have asked for a better takeaway. Um, that's a that's that's very uh, very well put. Let me ask you: If anybody heard the podcast and uh, and wants to get a hold of you to continue the conversation or have any follow up questions with with regards to Elma, what's the best way of reaching out to you or to Elma? Is it through the website, or what would you recommend somebody listening to this? podcast? I would say to? both. I would say. I would say first uh, go to the website and then there are ample ways there on the site that show you how to connect with us. And for those that are very targeted within some of the topic areas that we've discussed, Alberto, mm -hmm. I would say um, as your podcast becomes more and more uh, widely um, viewed, as I know it will be, um, I would be more than comfortable for people to go through you if you were comfortable with that sure. and then you decide how to curate and maybe uh, create um, some discussion forums where you and we together could engage with some of those folks. That sounds great. And for our, for our listeners, just so you know, uh, we do have uh, episode notes for this podcast that will be available on our website, which is Ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. And you'll be able to get a hold of some of the um, the salient points that we discussed today, some links to, uh, to relevant uh uh, material that we covered today as well and uh, and again if you want to continue the conversation here um, reach out to me and and, and we can um, we can continue with that point Tom look thanks so very much for joining today really great um, looking forward to our next chat and in the meantime eternally grateful for for giving me a little bit of your time today and for joining the podcast which is as you know a fairly new initiative and hopefully it'll uh, it'll flourish as you've uh, pointed out a little bit earlier uh, well thank you alberto it was my pleasure and i really enjoyed it and uh i look forward to watching the platform and the forum grow and uh happy to be helpful in any way i can 
Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. Thank you.